welcome back to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Al Winesett. And I'm Max Frost. And today we've got a nice environmentally conscious, eco-friendly edition of Banter for you. We're tree-hugging. Yeah, we're tree-hugging. We were recently emailed a book, or not emailed, uh, mailed hard copy, a book called A Better Planet, Big Ideas for a Sustainable Future. It was put out by Yale, the Yale Press, I think. And we get these books periodically from PR people, publicists. We picked up this book, and it's a series of, it's an anthology, a series of essays, and there's one that stood out to us called Private Lands, The Future of Conservation in America by Larry Selzer. Now, Larry's, so we looked this up, we read the essay, and Larry's the head of the Conservation Fund here in D.C., Arlington, somewhere around here. And so we're very happy to be joined by Larry himself today. So Larry and the Conservation Fund have kind of a unique approach to environmentalism. Rather than just regulate environmental issues away, they look for market-based solutions to do that. So we had an interesting conversation. It's a very different take on environmentalism than what you typically think of when you think of environmental groups. And we enjoyed the conversation a lot, learned a lot, and we think that you will too. So here he is, Larry. Larry, thank you for joining us today. It's great to be here. So let's start with perhaps a basic obvious question. What is the Conservation Fund and what is its purpose? The Conservation Fund is the nation's top-rated environmental charity. We work across all 50 states. We've been in business since 1985. And we have a unique charter under our 501c3. That's the uh, nonprofit umbrella uh, from the Internal Revenue Service. So under that 501c3 umbrella, we have a straight-up provision for conservation and I'll say more about that in a bit. And we also have a straight-up provision for economic development. Okay. And so working at the interface of business and environment, trying to balance economic return and environmental protection is where we like to play. Now, am I right in thinking most environmental groups aren't like that and all they care about is protecting the environment regardless of the cost? Or is that just kind of a trope about environmental? I think the environmental movement uh, is is uh, quite diverse and you have a full spectrum of organizations, some that are focused just on protecting biological diversity or habitat and others like the Conservation Fund that are really seeking that balance between economic and environmental objectives. Over the last 34 years, we've protected more than 8.5 million acres of land across the 50 United States, but we've also invested more than $500 million in sustainable economic development. Yeah, so usually in the popular media, those things are kind of at loggerheads. So you have the, for every extra percentage point economic growth, it does that amount of damage to the environment, that type of thing. So why... We've, we're at AEI. We're talking to a more conservative-leaning audience. Usually, environmental regulations people are is thought of as detrimental to the environment. So, why just to convince them, to convince us too, about the merits of conservation? What is what is important about conservation? Is it mainly about keeping forests intact to take carbon out of the atmosphere, or is it something different, or both? Well, it's a great question that has many answers, including uh, the role of large intact working forests. And I would like to say more about that in just a bit. But the reality is that the environmental movement spans that spectrum from regulation all the way to conservation and sustainable economic development. As I mentioned, we play more on the conservation and sustainable economic development side. And there really is no conflict at all between conservation and economic uh, benefits. Mm -hmm. In fact, conservation is an economic driver for many uh, rural communities. If you look at the lands that are conserved across this country, they support more than eight and a half million jobs if you include the forest products industry and the outdoor recreation economy, which is growing very rapidly. 
Uh, those are jobs that can't be exported overseas. They generate over $700 billion in economic benefit to the country. And these jobs are critical to rural communities, which often are natural resource rich, but job poor. And so we view conservation as a real driver for economic development, not in conflict in any way with prosperity. So can you kind of paint a picture of what is the environmental outlook in the United States right now? I mean, I see a lot on Twitter and, you know, in the New York Times that the government has gutted some, some you know, protection of the environment somewhere. And it seems like we're just kind of on a downward slope and that's – I mean, that's how it comes across in a lot of the media. Like are things getting drastically worse out there for the U.S. environment, do you think? I think it, you really have to look at what your point of reference is. And so for that, let me step back all the way to what I would view as the beginning of the modern – environmental movement in this country, which is Teddy Roosevelt mm -hmm. uh, back in the early 1900s. Back then, there was no regulation. There were new go no government agencies that were focused on land conservation. And as a result, many of the great natural resources of this country were being uh, systematically uh, depleted, uh, whether it was forests to build the railroad or build our communities or uh, minerals for uh, industrial development or species for clothing or hats or whatever it might be. Roosevelt was a man of action. He really launched the modern environmental movement. He created the U U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. He put in place the United States Forest Service. He built on the early uh, beginnings of the National Park Service and created the modern framework for public ownership of land. And today, we have a system of protected lands that is the envy of the rest of the world. More than 192 countries have emulated our national park system. But as you move through the early parts of the 20th century, World War II, the rapid industrialization of the country, the challenges shifted from the overuse of national forests or wildlife or minerals and mining to industrial pollution. Uh, there were no regulations. There were no controls. And that really reached its uh, climax in 1962 when a remarkable woman named Rachel Carson published a book called Silent Spring, which for the first time linked human health and the environment. And that really unleashed this second wave of uh, the environmental movement, which was focused on regulation. And where regulation didn't work, then legislation or litigation. And that really takes us all the way up to today, where we're more focused on sustainability. Mm -hmm. And sustainability clearly includes people in the equation. So it's not so much about keeping people from the natural resources as sustainably using the natural resources, benefiting wildlife, water, climate change, and the communities that are dependent upon them. So is that where the conservation fund comes in where currently we have a lot of regulations in the books that prohibits certain land uses at all? And then is the cons conservation fund then coming in to buy the land and allow certain uses of the land while preserving the environmental benefit of it? In part, that's, uh, that's accurate. We believe we're in the business of conservation. So we're a nonprofit by tax status, but we are a business like any other business. And we operate with the same principles and the same discipline, the same focus as any good entrepreneurial business. Our particular uh, slice of the movement is to uh, buy land for conservation and then uh, demonstrate how to sustainably use some of those natural resources to benefit communities, businesses, and the natural resources. We operate in a way that marshals uh, philanthropic and public capital, so grants from people, from foundations, from corporations, 
from government agencies. We acquire land when we're asked to by a public agency partner, and uh, then that land is, is set aside in perpetuity. Interestingly, that model, I think, is shifting in the direction less of government agencies owning land and more toward government agencies buying a conservation easement on that land. Now, an easement is a legal tool that came into existence in 1970, and what it does is remove certain rights from a piece of property. Mm -hmm. And this is really important. It's only done at the request of the seller. It's never done at the demands of a government agency. A seller decides that I'm never going to develop this property. Therefore, I can sell my development rights or I can donate my development rights because I want this to be a forest or a ranch or a farm or a wetland. And I think that's the future of conservation. It's a market-based mechanism but it still allows for continued historic uses on the property. It allows for the eco economics to stay intact. Yeah. One part that you mentioned in the chapter that kind of astounded me was just how much land the federal government owns, and especially in some western states. I have it written down somewhere that, yeah, they own 45% of Wyoming, 64% of the land in Utah, and I think 85% in Nevada. The idea that the government – what does the government do with 85% of Nevada's land and – is that, I mean, how did that come about and is that changing? I, I imagine if there's a lot of people that live in Nevada that probably think the land could be put to much better use, I'd imagine. They keep aliens there. Well, <laughs> other than Area 51. I mean, that probably takes up 58% on its own. I think it's important to understand that that land is held by multiple federal agencies, including the Department of Defense, which has major military installations out there. And of course, military installations were located far from people and require vast acreage. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's important to understand that it's not just the National Park Service or the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, although they have a magnificent uh, legacy holdings there. But if you add up all of the land, it does in Nevada uh, add up to quite a bit of land. And that's why it's important to allow the private land that is, is uh, remaining to be used for some economic purpose. That doesn't mean you can't protect the public interest values, the wildlife, biodiversity, the uh, water quality, uh, recreational opportunities. Those things can all be protected through conservation easements and still allow the land to be used for economic purpose. And so in those states, that's uh, what we're primarily focused on. As you move east of the Mississippi, less of each state is publicly owned and and uh, probably at the low end of the spectrum is Texas, where the majority of the land is still privately owned. And so acquiring that land on behalf of the state, uh, the Texas Parks and Wildlife Commission, or uh, on be, uh, buying conservation easements that monetize the development rights but allow for historic uses is an appropriate strategy. Now, to me, it seems like there's kind of two spectrums, at least in the popular discourse, there's kind of two spectrums here where you have on the one side free marketeers who are saying, you know, the land is for our use. We should do with it what we want, what the market decides we should do with it. On the other side, you have people who are saying the government should protect it as far as the Green New Deal kind of basing the whole economy around environmental protection. Is that a fair description at all? Or is it really very nuanced? And that's just kind of how it's characterized, but it's a much more complex issue. I think it's it's a nuanced um, analysis uh, that probably is more appropriate. But I will say that of recent times, uh, we have devolved into the either jobs or the environment mm -hmm. argument. And I think what the Conservation Fund is focused on is creating that third era 
of conservation for the country, what I would call the era of convergence. In other words, how can we integrate two of the most powerful forces in the country today, the environmental movement and the free enterprise system, that for too long these two powerful forces have flowed separately across the landscape. And in our opinion, it's time for them to come together and create a mighty river of action. And let me give you an example of what that might look like. Uh, for a hundred years, most of the uh, industrial forest lands in this country were owned by the integrated pulp and paper companies, the names you would recognize, International Paper, Georgia Pacific, Louisiana Pacific. And beginning in, in the late 1980s, they began selling these vast holdings. Uh, there were a number of reasons for that, some of them related to uh, global markets, some to tax and regulation, but the reality is they started to sell these lands. And what started as a trickle soon became a tsunami, and all told, roughly 90 million acres of forest land was sold. It's the largest transfer of private lands in the history of the United States. Now, when that tidal wave of disinvestment, if you will, uh, washed across the country, the conservation movement, government agencies, nobody was prepared for that. It was just too much, too fast. The cost, the scale overwhelmed everyone. And as a result, roughly 20 million acres of forest land was lost right off the top for development. So it's no longer growing trees, not providing any of the ecological or economic benefits. Uh, it's just second home development or commercial development. Interestingly, 70 million acres was acquired by a new class of owner, these are people who don't necessarily have manufacturing capabilities. They just view timber as an asset class, and they're buying on behalf of pension funds, university endowments, foundation endowments. The good news is they bought 70 million acres of land, and so these vast intact forests are still vast intact forests. The bad news is that most of them were structured as 10-year funds, and at the end of that, they have to return the capital back to the investors. And in that process, to maximize their return, which they're required to do by law if they're managing pension fund money, they subdivide the properties and sell them off for development. And so over the last 10 years, we've lost another 20 million acres of forest land. So we went from 90 million to 70 million, now down to 50 million. And all 50 million held in roughly the same category is going to be subject to the marketplace. And if we're not careful, we're going to lose another 20 or 30 million acres of forest land. Now, these, not, these are not just any lands in the country. These forest lands are some of the most important lands in America. They provide drinking water for 200 million people. They support 8.5 million jobs, and they offset roughly 20% of our, our carbon emissions on an annual basis. I would, I would uh, suggest that these forest lands are not just uh, an amenity, they're a necessity. They're part of the critical infrastructure of the country. So what is the ideal situation then? Because ostensibly you don't want to just buy the land and then not allow anybody to do anything with it. So how does this sustainability, sustainable – sustainability is one of those words that kind of is like a Rorschach test sometimes. People say like at UVA we had the sustainability club and it was like – it was really just the people that heckered you whenever you took more than one piece of napkin went to wash your hands with and the napkins were so cheap they wouldn't actually dry off your hands. So it was like it's the, it's the type of word that sometimes people hear and they don't like. What does sustainability look like in your view? Uh, well, I happen to like the word sustainability for the same reason because you can uh, impute into it all of the definitions and, and the rationale that, you, that you're looking to achieve. And, and for us, uh, we want to work at scale – 
we want something to be meaningful. We want it to benefit the uh, rural communities and the people that live there. And of course, we want it to protect all of those public interest values, wildlife, water quality, climate change, uh, sequestration, all of those things. And so to us, the ideal outcome, given the context of those large intact working forests, is that those forests remain as forests but they remain as working forests. And by working forest, I mean a forest where you're still harvesting timber, the forest products industry is still healthy. You're just preventing that forest from being subdivided and converted to non-forest uses so that all of those other public interest values can be maintained. And the way to do that, going back to my earlier conversation, is with a conservation easement. And it has to be an easement that not only restricts the development and subdivision, but also specifically allows for sustainable forestry. No matter who owns that forest, they can manage that forest in a sustainable way, which generates roughly 5 or 6% yield, which in this interest rate environment is a pretty good return. Yeah. Is that – I mean, is this commonly accepted as a good way to move forward among kind of the more – Both sides of the aisle? Like, what do you mean? Yeah, I mean, um, among – more like rad- – I don't want to say radical, but I don't know what the term is. More kind of yeah, is this, aggressive environmentalist. Is this – yeah, because is this one of the things kind of like nuclear energy where most people agree it's it's safe and good for the environment, but you still get people that don't want to accept it because they still just want either like degrowth or only renewable energy, that type of thing? Well, it's changing. Uh, and I would say over the last 15 years has changed dramatically. I think people now realize that landscape scale conservation is really the only path forward. That with climate change, species need room to move, uh, and it's not just wildlife. Uh, Water quality is at a landscape scale, and that all of those ecological benefits increase as you go up the scale uh, level. And so if we think about scale as an important outcome, we're, of course, talking about private lands, not more public lands, and we're talking about easements instead of fee ownership or acquisition by a public agency. And whether you're talking about ranch lands or agricultural lands, or in our case, principally forest land, that means you have to figure out how you're going to pay for this, but you also have to figure out what you do with the people and the communities who live inside these forested landscapes. They're critically important just as the wildlife and the water quality and the climate change mitigation uh, aspects are. And so... I think the environmental movement is slowly coming around to the fact that working forests, in fact, are not just a an interim step on the way to some sort of preservation, but in fact are the ultimate form of conservation because they protect people, communities, jobs, the tax base, as well as wildlife, water quality, and climate change. That wasn't the case uh, 15 years ago when we started this, when we were... Uh, a little bit ahead of the game, I would say, and uh, it was not widely accepted that harvesting trees could be classified as either sustainable or as conservation. Hmm. And how much money do you think we don't? We can cut this part out if we don't want to get too much into the internal finances of the fund. But is this the type of program that, to really achieve all the conservation efforts we want, we need the government to step in with like a five hundred million dollars package, or can individual donations of I guess what I'm really thinking of is that we're currently in the presidential cycle where Tom Steyer, billionaire industri- or environmentalist, is running for the Democratic Party. I saw a headline I think yesterday that he's already spent $47 million of his own money on his ticket. He has no chance of winning, and but he's claiming he wants to run to help the environment. I imagine that $47 million, how far would that go if he just gave that to the conservation fund? 
Well, we could do a lot with $4,000. <laughs> uh, and I would never say no, but I think the scale of the challenge is much larger than that. Let me just run you through a few numbers. Uh, remember, I said there's 50 million acres of land held in institutional ownership, uh, and all of it will be at some form of risk for fragmentation and conversion uh, over the next 20 or 30 years. Uh, the U.S. Forest Service inventories all this forest land, and they estimate that roughly 10% of that, or 5 million acres, is of high conservation value. Mm -hmm. And so that's our ultimate target. Five if, million acres? Five million acres. If you look at uh, across the country, prices vary dramatically from the Pacific Northwest where uh, timberland might be more than $4,000 an acre to north central Maine where it might be $300 an acre. But for ease of math, if we took $1,000 an acre, uh, to acquire that land, you're talking about $5 billion. Okay. Now, our model, this thing that we have developed called the Working Forest Fund, is a unique uh, mechanism for revolving capital in and out of transactions. And so we don't actually need $5 billion. We need the purchasing power of $5 billion. Eight years ago, we launched the Working Forest Fund to tackle this challenge of how we can ultimately end up with permanently conserved working forests. And we, we raised about $200 million in capital. About a third of that was charitable contributions. Individuals, foundations, corporations, all can play there. And about two-thirds was low or no cost interest, low or no interest loans that state agencies and private foundations can make to qualified nonprofits for mission-related purposes. We use that $200 million to acquire 650,000 acres of working forest. Our idea was to then set up a sustainable harvest plan, manage the forest to generate revenue so that we could afford to carry that forest until we could sell a conservation easement. The conservation easement generally costs about a third of the purchase price. So if you pay $100, the easement will be about $30, and that removes the development subdivision rights. That's where the government comes in. Government agencies can provide the money to buy the conservation easements. And in fact, there are existing programs uh, that exist that do a spectacular job, some in the U.S. Forest Service, some over at the Department of Interior some, frankly, from the Department of Defense. Those could all use more money because the scale of the challenge is, uh, is that big. So we're at 650,000 acres. Our goal is 5 million acres. You can see the steep curve that we have to climb. To get us along that path, just two weeks ago, we launched the first ever, we issued the first ever green bond for conservation because we're trying to prove that this convergence of the free enterprise system and the environmental movement, the use of capital markets and the tools of the marketplace to achieve conservation outcomes is the future of conservation in this country. And so we issued a $150 million taxable municipal bond that will be the first step in our capital raise to ultimately get up to protecting 5 million acres. Now we need to pivot to charitable support, and that's what we're focused on. Individuals, foundations, and corporations all have a role to play there. Yeah. But at the same time, government agencies also should increase the funding for conservation easements, particularly because they allow the land to stay in private ownership in economic performance with the jobs and the tax base intact, just protecting the things Americans care about. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, it seems like 
I had read about the green bonds somewhere in I can't remember what it was for, maybe some class I was taking. And it sounded really interesting at the time, but it seems like there's also a way if you have these investors and pension funds who are buying up land in 10-year increments as an asset to get returns on it, couldn't they theoretically just give that money to someone like the conservation fund as an intermediary tax-free and then the intermediary, you guys, gather all the money and then go purchase the land yourself and continually fund it every year with new investments from pension funds and the like? Is that possible? Well, uh, parts of it are, are not only possible, but they're part of our, our strategy. The one wrinkle is the tax-free. Even though we are a nonprofit and therefore tax-free, there's a difference in the bond market between tax-free bonds and taxable bonds and how they can be used and whether government money can be used in any part of that transaction. So we're on the taxable side of the market, but it's a market rate return. So we, we had to go and get an investment grade rating from the rating agencies and then we worked with Goldman Sachs, our underwriter, to issue this $150 million bond and it's a market rate return and people can certainly invest in that bond and provide us the capital. They also can leverage their investment in the bond by making a charitable contribution from their foundation uh, or some other means because every dollar that gets invested will probably buy $4 worth of forest land if you think about all these sources of capital. And just as you suggest, that money is, a, is, is the gift that keeps on giving because it's a revolving fund. In other words, we buy a forest, set up the management plan, sell the conservation easement, then sell the underlying land with the timber rights to a private buyer so the land is returned back into the market. The money that we receive makes us whole and we turn around and go do the next transaction. And so that money is continuously working and it's probably the most efficient, most effective charitable gift that anybody could make in the environmental space right now. Yeah, even setting aside some of the high finance stuff that you guys are talking about, which kind of going over my head in some ways, even just from a philanthropic point of view, we hear all the time about millionaires and billionaires who are giving money to their alma maters at like, is that how you pronounce it? Alma maters. Alma maters at like Columbia, <laughs> Yale, or Harvard, places that already have multi-billion dollar endowments. I just imagine their gifts, the money would go so much farther in, in a in a case like this, where you can do, the fund can do so much more with the money than Harvard. Harvard doesn't need another million dollars in their endowment. We had the president of Harvard on the show last year. I don't think, I don't think he'd want to hear that. I'll, I'll let Harvard defend uh, Harvard and, and the alumni do what they're going to do. But I, I would agree with you that we have the most effective and efficient strategy for land conservation, particularly working forest conservation uh, that's ever been developed in this country. If you care about water quality and drinking water, then you should be protecting forests. If you care about climate change, you should be making sure that these forests stay as forests. We continue to lose over a million acres of forest a year to development. That's like eating your seed corn because these forests that remain in this country offset roughly 10%, 10 to 20% of our uh, annual carbon emissions. And so all of the strategies that we uh, are discussing about uh, meeting our obligations to address climate change, none of those can be secured without making sure that these forests stay as forests. They're almost the, the core infrastructure of any plan that you would add to. And because of the way we've structured this, the fact that a dollar that's given is used again and again and again, and every dollar is leveraged three, four, five times by other sources of capital, this really is a great investment in conservation and climate change and water quality, not to mention the eight and a half million jobs uh, in rural communities. And as we all know, improving the 
the uh, the quality of life in rural communities ought to be a national priority in this country. Right. Yeah. Well, this is this is slightly refreshing after the environmental protesters were outside AEI two weeks ago saying. I can't remember what they the They was. put in chalk climate criminals with an arrow pointing up toward AI. Well, so. well yeah, there, there's that. And then there's <laughs> also, they're saying, you know, down with capitalism, down, you know, it's like pro-environment, anti-capital. Yeah, and I think the and German it, Green Party is, has an explicitly anti-growth platform where they, a lot of people think we need to reduce economic growth to help the environment. Yeah. So, so it's it's nice to hear someone tread the tread the line here, work both pro-market and pro-environment. A friend of mine who used to be the head of a foundation in New York that supported our work, a really brilliant man named Ed Sklut, once said that the environmental movement needs to peel back its fear of and contempt for the marketplace. We have been a commercial republic since our founding fathers created this American design. And I believe strongly that the free enterprise system and the tools of the marketplace provide us the only means to achieve conservation outcomes at the scale, the speed, and the complexity that we need to deal with the challenges. This is a really complicated world and getting more so every day. And we're just thrilled to be at the leading edge of this convergence of the free enterprise system and the environmental movement. And our Working Forest Fund, we think, is a great example of how nonprofits can behave more like a business to achieve a greater mission outcome. Yeah. All right. So, sounds great to us. Yeah. We'll have to leave it there. We're all out of time. Larry, thank you for coming on. It's wonderful to be here. As always, thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed. If you liked this podcast, please remember to leave us a review and a like on iTunes or Stitcher or Ricochet or wherever you get your podcasts. And speaking of reviews, we have one to read out here. Mildly, mildly O. Mild Yo. Mild. There's an L in between the mild and the yo. Mild L Yo. It's not like a cool like yo. Mild. But mild about it. Oh, mild yo. I was a little puzzled. By history PhD Michael Rubin stating that the unreliability of the United States as an ally is new or unusual. You could ask the white Russians, the South Vietnamese, the Marsh Arabs, and the Libyans to give their opinion on this subject. You have to use a Ouija board to contact them, of course. Heart. Mild Leo, that is. I don't know enough to comment right here and all of that. Well, I think history PhD Michael Rubin did mention that, or at least I've heard this in the news countless times now, that we've got a history of selling out the Kurds yeah. for various reasons. It's a, it, is, it is a shame. White Russians also, one of my favorite counterfactuals. If we, if we just propped them up a little bit more, might have never had the Soviet menace. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think it's just a function of geopolitics. And unfortunately, when we're using – when we're cooperating with local allies – they often tend to get sacrificed for the needs of our broader interests. But then again, I don't know. In each of these places, I'm not saying we shouldn't have stood by them. In many cases, we probably should have. And I think right now with the Kurds, we should have stood by them as well. We should mention that comment was in reference to a podcast we did two weeks ago with Michael Rubin. Last week, we had Paul Wolfowitz on. We highly recommend that one, former Deputy Secretary of Defense during the Bush years. Usually, people think of Paul Wolfowitz in relation to the Iraq war, but he has so much more experience than just the Middle East. So we really recommend you check that podcast out. We've been a little bit foreign policy heavy lately, but we've got this. We hope you liked this environmentally conscious podcast today. And next week, we have a really get into the thick of D.C. politics. We have Kim Strassel, Potomac Watch columnist from The Wall Street Journal, coming on next week. Yeah. And now, not to change topics, but I do want to change topics. I had an idea this morning. Today's uh, NBA opening day. Oh, yeah. All these people who are so livid about the NBA in China. Like me. Like you. 
there should be a boycott of the NBA. The only way that you're going to get these people, to, that you're going to get companies to stop doing business with China is if the Americans, the biggest market, the richest country in the world, use their influence over the companies. So how come none of these people are saying we're going to boycott the NBA until they – Plenty of people are. I think maybe not boycotting. Plenty of people or... like political analysts who don't watch the NBA. But I mean the 100 – I mean how many how many people watch the NBA? 100 million people? I don't know. 50? I mean this – a lot of it would – I mean I don't really watch the NBA so I can't really boycott them either. Well, you are going to see NBA stadiums are bracing for Hong Kong protesters throughout the whole opening week. And I've actually suggested this. I brought this up to you. I want to go to the Wizards home opener in a free Hong Kong t-shirt or a sign because all these stadiums have policies that say Capital One Arena, for example, has a policy that you're allowed to bring a sign into the game and it just can't be political in nature. And now people are getting videotaped having in America their signs and shirts confiscated and being ejected from games for wearing shirts or holding signs that just say things like Google Uyghurs, the ethnic minority the Chinese government is ruthlessly persecuting right now two things two things on that yeah. first joe harris uva alum alum who is got a nba now he said last week winner of the three-point contest winner of the three-point contest he was asked if he was worried about the financial implications of the daryl morey's tweet which caused the whole crisis here and joe harris said i already get paid too much to play a game so not really i love joe Harris. we need more joe harris even more than i already did um so yeah i mean i mean all this thing it's as far as I'm concerned, if you actually care about this and everybody's been talking about it, everybody's been ta- talking about how much they care about the Hong Kong protests and how spineless the NBA is, blah, 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 boycott the NBA. Yeah. I'm serious. I mean, I like my, like, I don't want to, lots of friends of mine have been talking about this and they're, they're going to probably go to the Wizards opener tonight or tomorrow, whatever it is. Boycott the NBA. I mean, I'm serious. It's the whole thing. You should, they should have some spine. You have to make companies pay if you don't agree with their politics. I mean, not if you don't agree with their politics, but if you really want to make a statement here, you tweeting about it's going to do nothing. You have to actually do it. That's the, just like the Chinese do to force these companies to bend to their will, American consumers can do the same to force them to bend to our will. Yeah. And the, the shame is that people say like, oh, why do you care what – I mean there's two things. A, if the NBA just came out and said, yeah, the Chinese market's huge and if the players have come out and, and came out and said, yeah, like we are going to lose $5 billion if we don't basically bend to the Chinese will here, then people would say – People at least would recognize that they're being honest, but they, they, they seem to be wanting to have it both ways where they simultaneously say, we stand for free expression and all this stuff. But then the second you put a microphone in front of their face, they just want to say, look, I'm not a politician. I'm just here to talk about basketball when they have no problem talking about any other political issue. Well, that's exactly it. And, for, and to me, it's not – I'm not saying you should go boycott companies you disagree with. But I'm just going to say if you're going to preach and criticize these companies so much and say you can't believe they're doing this. Well, you've got your own mechanism to force that, you know, in mass. Yeah. And it, the other thing is it's a shame because despite how much money the NBA can make from China, the NBA can also have a positive difference on China itself, I feel like. I mean, maybe this is naive of me to think, but LeBron and people like him have so much cultural clout that if they actually made, came out and made a stand and just even if they just said something, forget the Hong Kong issue, which is probably more complicated. There's that horrible piece in uh, Hearts, the Israeli newspaper the other day, just detailing the just atrocities are going on to the Uyghurs. And if LeBron just said something about that, China could say LeBron are banned and the NBA is banned from China. The Chinese people themselves would then have would then be left without the NBA as a product. They might then think, why is our government depriving us of this product? And they might turn on they 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 certainly would view their own, the Chinese Communist Party authorities, with less favorability than they do now. I th- I, I think I think that's debatable, but I, I I agree with I agree with the idea. But speaking of which, if anyone has not seen it, which is probably most people. There is an article last week in Haaretz, the Israeli – one of the major Israeli papers where – English papers where they talked about – where they interviewed an escapee from one of the Uyghur labor camps or 
re-education camps in northwestern China. Uh, it's a long article, but you should absolutely read it. It's disturbing. Yeah. Everybody should read it to know what's actually happening over there. Yeah, I think someone – I saw online someone tweeted it out just with their caption like, nobody should be able to say that they don't know what's going on. Yeah. Like, and it's amazing. Lots of people don't. I yeah. mean it's just not – it's so far – it just comes down to you know Chinese human rights abuses. That's, I, I'm doing that in air, in air, in air yeah. quotes. I mean obviously there's different degrees and people should realize that some of the stuff they're doing is really atrocious. Yeah. I mean like and assuming that this is all true, I, I don't see why this woman who escaped would lie. But yeah, like just basically human experiments, forced abortions, all the worst possible abuses you can think of. People getting killed, people being raped. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's utterly insane. And for the NBA, I guess you just want to sell more. If well, they, they the NBA set up a training camp in the state where these labor... Yeah, in are. Xinjiang, the yeah. province. But forget it. You can make a billion dollars in shoe sales there. So I guess it's all worth it. It's just... It's so disappointing. It is. Well, so that's what I'm saying. If you care about it. There's stuff you can do. Yeah, Don't I think R- your money. Rich Lowry, had a, he had a scathing article in National Review or Politico recently where he's like, little did the Soviets know, all they had to do to defeat us in the Cold War was open up their market and buy a lot of Nike shoes. And then we would, like all our companies would just bend over backwards to do whatever they wanted, which is essentially what it feels like it, it's coming down to. So on that frightening note, we will be back next week with Kim Strassel to talk about resistance at all costs. Her new book on everything DC, impeachment, all that stuff. Yeah, so we look forward to that, and we'll see you then. Mm